Hey, everybody. Before we get into our conversation on For the Man Who Has Everything, we're joined by a special guest, frequent Digging for Kryptonite collaborator, contributor, guest, and comic book artist, V. Ken Marion. What's up? What's up, Anthony? How's it going? Thanks for having me here. Yeah. So you haven't been a, a regular guest on an episode in a little while. You've been busy. For one thing, you got married. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Married life's awesome. I joined the club. So, um, you know, it's been nothing but uh, pure happiness for the last month. So I'm so I'm so happy to hear that. And on top of that, of course, I know you've been hard at work as the artist on Death Shroud from Dream Key Comics. You know, every time you've been on Digging for Kryptonite and I've said, hey, like, what are you working on? It's been Death Shroud. And I know uh, you and the creative team, you have the first six issues done. And now there's an Indiegogo campaign for the release of the giant size issue number one. Uh, the campaign is currently going. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. I hope people will check it out. But as much as I know we've we've mentioned Death Shroud when you've been on the show, uh, for anyone who uh, either missed that or needs a little refresher, what, what's the basic pitch for for this comic? Yeah, so Death Shroud is a dark anti-hero uh, hero adventure book um, in the vein of Spawn, for fans of Spawn or Venom or the video game Darksiders or Diablo. Um, it, it The... Tagline is special ops um, operative John Asriel gets killed when a mission goes sideways and he gets uh, he's soon instead of dying, he's reborn as this sort of nightmarish creature. And he soon finds out that he is the son of the angel of death. So he's half angel and half human. And he's thrown into this um, war between a rogue faction from heaven and hell that are conspiring with each other to um, wipe out humanity. And he is put in the middle and wants and is there to save the world. So um, yeah, it's a very, very fun, high action, high energy book. And um, yeah, I hope everyone checks it out. Uh, the Indiegogo campaign is going live right now for the giant size issue number one, 52 pages, um, super high, high uh, production value, very thick cards. It's, it looks like a trade paperback, shiny covers, you know, glossy paper, um, ship, express shipping through Purelator from, so it's super high quality. And um, I'm doing the artwork. Um, it's written and created by Chad Larson. And the colors are by Andrew Dollhouse. Um, so we've got a really great team here um, working super hard to make the most fun book that you've had, in a, uh, you've read in a long time. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, again, I know listeners of this podcast have, have heard your voice a bunch of times, and I know you have a lot of fans of your art who listen to this podcast. So uh, I hope that people will check out the Indiegogo campaign and uh, you know contribute if, if you're able to, or uh, even if not, if you can share it, if there's anyone in your life who you think might this might appeal to, you know, Ken just laid out uh, you know a, a lot about the story and, and sort of what it speaks to and, and what other uh, projects you know there might be a little crossover with in terms of area of interest. So you know if there's someone in your life who likes that kind of stuff, like please share this with them because maybe it will it will appeal to them. And and I hope you'll check out the campaign. And there are a bunch of uh, you know sample pages that you can kind of take a look at and and learn a little bit more about the story. So uh, I wish you guys lots of luck with this campaign i am eagerly awaiting my copy of giant size issue number one of course i ordered the v ken marion cover uh if anyone wants Thank to hear uh, more from us about this uh we actually did a longer version of this conversation on the anthony desiato youtube channel so if you want to hear us talk about this for about 20 minutes or so uh that's out there on youtube you can go and check that out and ken uh you'll you'll be back not not too long from now because we have our big hundredth episode of digging for kryptonite coming up and it's you were here for number one you got to be here for number 100 man can't wait, man. I cannot wait. It's going to be so much fun. It's just always a blast whenever we get stuck. And um, yeah, I want to say thank you to everyone who's supported or who's going to go check it out. Thank you so much. We appreciate all your support from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much. All right. Right on, man. Lots of luck. 
Since the beginning of this podcast, almost 100 episodes ago, I have been mining my 30-year Superman fandom, starting with that tattered red cape, within the larger context of the character's rich 85-year mythology, examining, discovering, and reconsidering the creative visions that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Now, our milestone 100th episode beckons, and the journey continues. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the Alan Moore story for The Man Who Has Everything and its adaptations on Supergirl and Justice League Unlimited is returning guest, the host of the Krypton Report podcast, Tyler Patrick. Welcome back. Hey, Anthony. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, it was great when you asked me because this is just, it's a great story. And with, you know, the, the, um, the life that this story has taken on its own. It's been amazing. I, I do want to throw this out there to your listeners. Uh, we preemptively apologize if there's any issues. I'm currently having a snowstorm slash like sleet storm. <laughs> so sometimes that messes with the, the cords outside because I do live in a small town because, you know, Smallville's the home. So I live in a small town surrounded by cornfields. Yes. No, thank you for putting that out there. And yes, audience, please bear with us. Hopefully everything will go smoothly from a technical standpoint, but if not, please, please uh, roll with the punches with us here, but we'll, we'll make the best of it. But I'm excited to have you here. This is truly a classic Superman story, uh, originally by the creative team of the Watchmen creative team, no less, of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons in Superman Annual Number 11, 1985. So we're at the tail end of the Bronze Age. And this is another one of those stories. This sort of caps off a little bit of an unofficial trilogy on the podcast here where we looked at whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, all-star Superman for the man who has everything, some real heavy hitters when we're talking about classic mm -hmm. Superman stories that are always on those lists. And as I've been saying with the other ones, we, I save these purposely for this deep into the podcast because I just thought we get a little more mileage out of it now after everything that we've, we've been looking at and, and reading and watching. So, you know, here we are to talk about this story. And again, it's adaptations. And like I said, we'll talk about the, the Supergirl episode from season one that adapted it. But even, even more so, I think, I'm sure we'll end up spending more time on the Justice League Unlimited episode. That was a direct adaptation written by J.M. DeMatteis. And there, you know, For the Man Who Has Everything is, is a fascinating story to look at and discuss in its own right. And of course, we always respect and appreciate the original, the source material. But for my money, you know, you look at that that animated episode, and I think it's a great lesson in the art and the power and the potential of adaptation and of actually taking something and making I, it better. I 100% agree. Like that's in my notes of just like it's a, you know you have this source material, and I I think sometimes in comics in general, a lot of times the writing gets overcomplicated, and that might be because they're trying to do too much or they have to tie into different series or whatever. When you do an adaptation, sometimes you just streamline the 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 main heart, the, the the what it is, and that's what we'll get to. But something you just said that I didn't think about, Alan Moore's for the uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, kind of the ending of the Silver Age, and then here you have this where you're kind of ending capping like you just said the Bronze Age. Kind of interesting that these significant stories both written by Moore, kind of ending an error of Superman. Very true. That is very true. The, you know, the other thing that we're talking about the eras and the ages in particular, 
of course, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, very much a coda to the Silver Age Superman and plays with a lot of those characters and dynamics and tropes. For the man who has everything, with the exception of the inclusion of the Jason Todd Robin, which which <laughs> firmly dates dates the story, but other yes. than that, it it really I, I do think there is a very timeless quality to that story. It really you know really stands on its own, and and you can look at it regardless of the specific age that you're in, uh, and which I think is is a really cool aspect to it. But but you're right. I mean, to have more right these two stories, um, you know, again capping off definitive eras within the character's history uh, is, is an interesting aspect to all of this. Now, let, let me toss this to you first, the sort of the big picture question here, which is like, what, what space has for the man who has everything occupied in your Superman fandom? Because I'll be honest, I read it for the first time years ago. I can't, I don't even remember when it, maybe it was because it, it has been included in collections of whatever happened to the man of tomorrow for a while now. That was probably the first time I read it. And I've read it only a, maybe a couple of other times since then. When I did my Bronze Age episode, I read it, but that was in, in the context of a larger, uh, a larger body of, of of issues that I was looking at. So, I guess that's that's a long winded way of saying I, this has not been a major piece of my Superman fandom as much as I've I've always generally enjoyed it, and I recognize its its importance and why it's always on those lists and everything. But it's never really been a big thing for me, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do an episode. I was like, well, this would be worth spending more time on and really considering and, and what it all means. But what, what has it meant for you over the years? Well, for me, I was first introduced to the story through the, the animated episode. And I think that story holds the larger place for me. And we'll get into it more when we get there. Um, it was after, it was a few years, I want to say, The first time I read it, I bought it digitally. I want to say it's 2015. Um, because I kind of, it was one of those that kind of slipped my mind. And I remember I was before the Supergirl episode, uh, but we were talking about it in a comics group. And I just bought it digitally and I read it and I had it. And I was kind of shocked to see it was only one issue. It was a new one. So, you know, usually those are a little bit bigger. Um, and I really liked a lot of it, but there's some things I was just like, hmm, and we'll break that down more, but I think it's a great story, but we'll get into where and why, because I think the comic is really good. Yes, it's the source. It's kind of like almost like a cover song. Like there's very few ever cover songs that I think are better than the original, Um. And the, the one that comes to mind that I'll argue I think is the best cover song of all time is Johnny Cash doing Hurt. Dude, oh my God. Uh, I, as you were... <laughs> your face was priceless right there. As That's why we, we, now we do video podcasts again. As you were saying that, as you were saying that, the first thing that came into my mind was Johnny Cash's Hurt and the image of Michael Rosenbaum's Lex Luthor in that padded cell, in the straight jacket, at the end of that season three episode, I could not agree more. It's like anytime people say like, you know, cover songs, whatever. And I'm like, name a cover song that's better than the original. That's the one I go to because I feel like Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, it's a good song. But there's something about hearing those words from a man who's lived the life that Cash did. And just the, the sorrow in his voice that on an emotional level hits me and i feel like 
that's what the Justice League Unlimited episode is compared to the source material. I respect the source material for what it is, but the it was elevated in this uh, cartoon episode, and we'll break it down. But I just think that this is a great story for the idea of if we were given exactly what we want, how would we be able to recognize that it's not right? Like, could you, could you, if you had the, the mercy on you and in your mind, you're living your pur- purest life, would you be able to figure out that there's something wrong or would you just buy into what it is? Right. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's a fascinating question. And I suppose the other reason why I wanted to cover this story now, especially right after whatever happened and all-star Superman in, in those stories and those episodes, we talked a lot about what, what an appropriate ending for the character of Superman would be in the context of those specific stories, but also just big picture and hand in hand with that, you know, here we're not talking about a final story, but, but this idea of what, what does he ultimately want? What, what is Superman's heart's desire? And, 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 and so I think there's a lot that's interesting to explore here. Now, I, I, you know, again, I assume people are familiar with the story, but they might not be. So for anyone who, who isn't, uh, we'll start with the comic book version. Then, you know, later we can unpack how the, how the animated series deviated from it. But we open in the Superman annual, it's Superman's birthday and Batman and the Jason Todd Robin meet Wonder Woman outside the fortress. They're there to celebrate Superman's birthday and give him gifts. Uh, Wonder Woman has a replica of the bottle city of Kandor, which at this point in comics had been enlarged. So she brought him a replica as a memento of the bottle city. And Batman paid a horticulturist uh, to uh, develop a new strain of, of rose called the Krypton. So those are the gifts that they're there to bestow upon the Man of Steel. And they enter the fortress to find him in the thrall of what we come to learn is the Black Mercy right? This symbiotic, parasitic, plant-like creature, right? That's telepathic and places its victims in this dreamlike state that feeds them their heart's desire. And this was all set in motion by Mongol uh, to incapacitate the Man of Steel, the, the one being that he, he perceives to be uh, an obstacle to his conquest of Earth. So as we make our way through that 40-page annual, like you said, it is a longer story, uh, we have Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman trying to free Superman and fighting Mongol while in Superman's mind, we see the life that he's living on Krypton, a Krypton that was never destroyed. So it's a, it's a, it's a great setup. I think it's, it's just a great device. I'm actually, I'm actually surprised that this story has not been adapted more. Like I'm, I can't believe Smallville never did this. But yeah, that's with as much as Smallville took Clark into a way of being Superman before Superman, because let's face it, he did a lot of what Superman would do before he was actually Superman. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm just as much as you surprised they never did. Now, I wanted to bring this up. I went ahead and watched this just for some points, but there is a very loose, somewhat utilized episode of the TV series Krypton that used the black mercy and told a similar story about what was going on in Krypton versus what was going on in the character's mind. Um, and I, I watched it. You, I know you haven't dug into Krypton. 
and I'm not going to give away any spoilers or plot things, but I'm going to point out a couple of things, just the way the planet was depicted was interesting because it was depicted a little bit differently the way it worked and things in the, in the episode of Krypton. So I find that interesting just because they used it. And then here you are talking about Smallville. It's one of those big, I think Superman things that they never did. I mean, Lois and Clark didn't, but I, I, I mean, yeah, but you know, Smallville had the opportunity with, you know, it would have been probably Oliver coming to Clark's birthday, you know, Oliver and, you know, they could have put in anyone else that they had from, you know, uh, Kara or Dinah or, you know what I'm saying? Like there was the characters to do. So you could have done the story since you didn't have Batman and Wonder Woman proper. Uh, let me just say, I, I, for, for anyone who's like, oh, we don't need to hear about Smallville. I'll, I'll keep this brief, but I just have to say, cause I, I kept thinking about how Smallville could have done it. And not, I think your ideas are great as far as what the setup would be. And I agree totally. I mean, their Oliver Queen was their Batman. So it's like, yes, it definitely would have been, <laughs> it would have been Ollie there. But I was thinking about what, how they could have used it and what purpose it could have served. And I, I've talked about this before and any Smallville fan will know instantly what I'm talking about. The, the ultimate resolution to the Clark Lana relationship left a, a lot to be desired from my perspective. It didn't give us the level of closure that it should have, particularly from Clark's perspective. And so I think it would have been really interesting in those in nine or t season nine or 10 to do a black mercy esque episode where we get to see his heart's desire and perhaps the audience, perhaps Lois would anticipate that in his heart's desire in this, in this ultimate fantasy that Lana would be there, but no, it's actually Lois instead, thus showing Lois and, and us, the audience that he has well and truly gotten over Lana and that he doesn't want to be with her. It's not that he physically literally can't because she emits kryptonite radiation, long story, um, but rather that he has truly moved. So I feel like it could have served a very valuable function towards the end of the series. I like that a lot because I hated the whole kryptonite radiation thing where it basically forces them apart instead of just letting him mature and grow and learn on his own that that's not the relationship for him. Yes. But that's but anyway, a whole nother conversation. But so going back to this comic story, let me, let me, let me toss it to you first. I mean, just ov overall impressions, you know, what stood out to you? Has anything is again, this is not the first time you, you read it. Uh, have your impressions changed at all? Was there anything with, with this reading in preparation for this episode that sort of changed from, you know, the, the, the way you, you might've taken in the story previously? I, I think it's one of those stories that I think I paid a little bit more attention to the Krypton side this time, because the first time I read it, I accidentally really did not like the Krypton side in the story. I'm still not a huge fan of, of the way, the Krypton side was done, but I paid more attention to that. And I just, I, I think there's, I paid a little bit more because doing it where we read it, then I watched the episode and all that paid a little bit more attention to the details. Cause I did this homework all in one day. So like I, I had that knowledge from one to the next to the next. Um, but it's when I read the comic, I mean, the Krypton side doesn't grab me as much. There's one part that kind of does. And I think that's where I feel like the story kind of fails me a little bit is because I'm not as invested in the Krypton side. And I don't feel like Clark is as invested in the Krypton or Cal. 
he was never Clark, so Cal is not in, as invested in the Krypton side. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I could keep going, but I, I, I think we probably had similar experience. I too did my homework all in one day today, in fact, so it's very fresh. <laughs> I, I, nice. I reread Superman annual 11. I rewatched the justice league unlimited episode. It's the second episode of justice league unlimited. So of course we had two seasons of justice league, but uh, right off the bat in, in unlimited, they, they adapted this story. I rewatched season one, episode 13 of the Supergirl series titled For the Girl Who Has Everything. Uh, and I also, this was not a sign, but I did also, just a few minutes ago, I reread Green Lantern number seven and eight from the Jeff Johns, that first Jeff Johns series where Ollie and Hal are are placed under the effects of the Black Mercy. Uh, so not, again, not an adaptation per se, but another use of Black Mercy. And there was kind of, there was a cool little, little twist there that I'll talk about later that I, that I thought was neat. Um, so it, it, it's all, it's all relatively fresh, but the biggest problem I had with the comic is, and I, I don't like, <laughs> who am I to question Alan Moore? But I, I feel like, right, right. but the whole idea is that this is supposed to be your heart's desire, your ultimate fantasy made real. And Clark's life on Cal's life on Krypton Seems like a f- nightmare. It- right. That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> this is what he's supposed to wish he had. Like, and, and, you know, like, I'm thinking to myself, like, is it his subconscious in a way? Am I putting too much thought into this where his subconscious is creating this horrible life because he can't accept a good life on Krypton because he doesn't feel connected to Krypton? Or am I just overthinking this? Um, but the whole time I'm like, if you're supposed to give somebody their heart's desire and their fantasy, which we see with other characters, um, you know, with what happens at the end. Um, I also found it interesting that it opened with a prologue already on Krypton for their, you know, entering the fortress. I had, I had forgotten that part. So they, they set up the Krypton life and, it has some cool name drops in it, you know, and it sets up and I'm like, is this really what it was supposed to have been like if Krypton hadn't exploded and Cal just lived there? Like, is this really a good life? So, so that's the thing. I feel like the story betrays its own premise in this instance. And, and, and again, for anyone who's not familiar with this, it will give sort of the, the overview of, of Cal's life on Krypton. And like you said, it opens with this prologue where he's walking home. He works at the geology center studying rocks from the candor creator a crate creator crater uh after the city was miniaturized and taken and he they describe him as being weary as he's walking home right from from his day at the at the lab and he walks home to this surprise party and in in that in that scene and one the last panel on that page in particular we are told and we are shown that he is content right? Surrounded by his family, his wife, Lila, right? A great silver age pull when Superman had traveled through time and, and lived on Krypton. He had this relationship with, with the actress, Lila Leral. I don't know how you would say that, but, mm. uh, so, you know, so that was, the, they have two children, Van and, and Orna. So they've given him this, this family unit, which is great. And that's probably the, the bright spot in this life on Krypton. But then each time we peel back the layers, right, and and see more of his time on Krypton, this is a Krypton that never exploded. 
Jor-El has been disgraced, right, for his false prediction that the planet was, was going to die. He has now become part of this old Krypton movement, trying to make Krypton great again. Boy, it's amazing how 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 <laughs> history repeats itself. But he's thrown in with this sort of Rao sect, right? These religious zealots, it seems. Uh, and then hand in hand with that, I guess on the other side, we have this uh, this other this other group campaigning for the release of the Phantom Zone criminals because they consider it torture, and they even attack. Kara Zorel and put her in the hospital. And Jorel had had a falling out with Zorel, who has since died, and he won't speak to Alora or Kara. Uh, Lara is has died. So it's a it's a Krypton in turmoil throughout this story. Mm-hmm. A very strained relationship between Cal and Jor. And again, it's just hard it's hard to see how this would really be be a good thing. <laughs> now I did think a little bit about the matrix, like in the first movie where you have this scene where Neo is talking to agent Smith and agent Smith is like in the first matrix, it was pure. It was paradise. It was everything, but your brains wouldn't accept it. They couldn't, you know, align that this is real. So they had to make it horrible and mundane. And then, you know, people accepted that as their reality and I, you know, I thought about that too in the sense of like, well, maybe that's the only way for someone to believe that it's real is because it has to suck. <laughs> like, what does that say about our our look at reality and the lives that we lead? Like, the only way to actually feel like we are alive is to feel pain and unhappiness. We're content, but are we like truly happy with what we have? Or once again, I might be digging too deep. <laughs> well, so that's a good question because I think that's a valid you know, maybe that is a valid way to look at it and and a, and a correct way to sort of reconcile this apparent disparity between the fantasy that it's supposed to be and the and the nightmare that it, it kind of appears to be. So so maybe it is that. Maybe it is his mind sort of, you know, allowing himself to buy into it, right? So it's, it's, not, it's not perfect. And maybe just the fact in and of itself that Krypton is alive, right, is, is enough of the fantasy. And then in fairness... The rest of it plays out perhaps realistically, right? Like we don't know what would have become of Krypton. It probably would have been a tough road for Jor-El after that. I mean, I, I, I you know, it's it's tough to see Jor-El in that space. I th- again, the animated episode was a far kinder treatment. But, you know, whether it's something like this or all that ridiculous Mr. Oz business from the comics in recent years, it's like, I just, I, I, it, this, these stories lose me when, when Jor-El is, is corrupted uh, to to this extent, mm-hmm. it's just it, it's a little it's kind of a tough pill to swallow, you know. So I agree, but yeah. So uh, uh, I, to your point, because I was thinking about this too, that maybe these imperfections, to to put it mildly, right, are are his, you know, his it's his mind's way of sort of breaking through this fantasy, right. I thought that the the animated episode did a far better job where he would periodically feel these tremors, right? As Batman was trying to free him and was trying to get through mm-hmm. to him, like there would be these tremors. So you were seeing these manifestations of the real world kind of calling back to him in the form of these tremors. Yet still, otherwise, it was a fairly idyllic existence for him on on Krypton in the cartoon. Here... Yeah, let's not get to the cartoon yet. I got all kinds of stuff. To all say. right, all right. Like, but but you know. yeah, but like here, it's just I feel it, it would have been more effective maybe if there had been more of a 
slow. And look, I know we only have so many pages to work with here, but maybe more of a, like it starts off great and then it, it sort of starts to fall apart, but it just seems sort of baked into this life. <laughs> a, a lot of, a lot of less than ideal scenarios. Yeah. And I, I think once we establish our, our thoughts here, as we go into the next one and the next one, we can roll back to the way each one did certain things. Um, you know, in this, so what I found interesting that I had forgotten is when they find Clark, Cal, Superman, in in the fortress, um, like you said, there's Wonder Woman, Robin, Batman, how the Black Mercy is actually digging in to him, like into his chest. Like it's cut through his his suit and it's, you know, digging inside of him. And what I found interesting was um I'm pretty sure it was in the comic that we get um where is it? Mongol comes out and they don't know who it is. Like Wonder Woman and Batman do not know who this person is. And he talks about coming through like a portal with the with they disguised the Black Mercy as a as a birthday present because a lot of other planets give Clark birthday presents. But what I found interesting is he has these giant gloves that he takes off. And then we have Mongol exposition dump. And he's like talking about what the plan is and all this. And I just thought that was funny because they're like, he's just telling them everything about it. Um, so it was a, let's see, a plant fungus that gives them their hearts, telepathically gives them their heart's desire. Is what he was what Mongol says. Yes. Yeah, he's very, you know, he's very forthcoming, typical, you know, villain speech, right? Wants to <laughs> wants to lay it all out for them. I I I will say there there are some great beats in the comic that are replicated in the in the adaptations. I mean, in particular, Superman's rage, right? When when he you know wakes up after losing essentially losing this family right and in particular the son even though he has a daughter as well there's very little screen time for for orna in that story it's it's really cal and van and and and, and a resonant moment you know towards the end of the krypton sequence where cal now has started to realize that something's not right did did it track for you do you feel like there was enough in the krypton pages that really showed how he knew this wasn't real no no i i in all honesty i felt like it was kind of abrupt where he gets to where he's like i don't think this is real and i was like thinking to myself did i miss something because i don't feel or see or sense where he started to come to terms with it's not real and we'll we'll get into it later how other adaptations kind of did that but yeah, in the comic, it just you know, it's like he's he's with Van in the crater, and he just turns to him and is like, "I don't think you're real. I don't think this is real." And you know, we, you have Batman on the outside using his like laser cutters and gadgets and whatever, trying to get it off of him, and it's not coming. And then eventually, you know, Jason puts on the big Mongol gloves and is able to get it off and. That's 
And we have what I found interesting was how one how much Wonder Woman was getting beat by Mongol. Yes. Like in the in the in the comic, like she's getting tossed around and beat and she goes for that giant pulsing cannon to use against him. Um, all things that get replicated in the animated series quite well, but it just, it wasn't tracking for me where how Clark could, could sense he's not in something like how he was able to pull himself out. Like it just, it wasn't tracking as well. And that's the thing. I think going back to what I was saying before, I think if there had been more of a, of, you know, elements introduced that started to feel wrong to him in some way. And then the facade started to, to break apart, but it just seems like these situations, these relationships, these dynamics were already part of his life on Krypton. So it was kind of hard to see, well, what was it that was the, the turning point for him, right? I mean, you know, Kara getting injured and then seeing this rally where Jor-El is introduced as the chairman of this old Krypton movement, I guess was jarring, but it really felt like a leap from that to Van, I don't think you're real. You know, I really had a hard time tracking that. Let me also ask you this again, still staying in the, in the, in the comic realm. What did you think just generally of this life? I mean, we talked about ways that it's not perfect, but just in terms of him on Krypton, with Lila and having these kids, yes, recognizing that we're in a different era of the comics, right? It's not, it's not post-crisis <laughs> where he's married to Lois and, and all of that, but was it, did it, was it surprising to you or did it feel appropriate that he was with Lila, for example, instead of Lois or Lana or Loana, which we'll get to? You know, I had forgotten until I, about him, you know, traveling and actually having her, you know, beforehand and an encounter. So that does track because I was like, who is this person? But having that previous encounter, it does kind of track that she cements his life at, in Krypton. Um, but, you know, his, I find it interesting that his mother's dead. You know, his, his uncle is dead. And it, like I said, it, is that the, the world you want to live in? <laughs> You know, is that your heart's desire is to be on Krypton with your, you know, your, your family, but they're at war with each other and your mom is dead, who technically you've never known your mother and to have this strange relationship with your father that you've always wanted to meet. That's, that's your fantasy. So, uh, you know, like you said, no disrespect to Alan Moore, but I, I don't track as much with the Krypton story in this, the political side. It's almost like you had two stories and you kind of made them work together in some way. Like you had an idea to do this political story on Krypton, but then you ran out of time and you had this other idea. So you just kind of worked them together or something. Yeah, may maybe, maybe. Cause that's the thing. The, the political intrigue, this divide on Krypton, it's interesting enough in its own right. I don't know if this was necessarily the vehicle for it, I, and I, look, in fairness too, this was a pre-crisis Superman. The idea of being on Krypton as as his ultimate fantasy, I I can buy into more than again if if we were having the you know the post if we were talking about the post-crisis version. I, I again, it, you know, it's funny. 
like we know, right, later in the story, the mercy attaches itself to Batman. And instantly, we're back in Crime Alley, but this time, Joe Chill misses, and Thomas Wayne leaps into action, beats the crap out of him. And it's like, of course, like, this this makes absolute sense. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I'm saying about the other characters. Like, Batman's fantasy, his heart's desire, I'm tracking with. Like, I'm, like, I'm there for him. Like, that that's heartbreaking that's like that's what he that's what bruce wants i did have to double check just because i couldn't remember but this this is comes out in 85 86 is when watchman starts so it kind of makes you think where alan moore's mind is and where he's starting to lean to and think about with you know political um subplots and the world and stuff like that and how maybe there's a seed in here for what he's going to be doing here where you know, releasing Watchmen here shortly. So perhaps, perhaps. And, and to your point, yeah, Wonder Woman really does take a a beating here. Not dissimilar from the cartoon, but there was more redemption for her there. This one, you know, not necessarily the, the, the kindest treatment, but I I think the high, I mean, it may be weird to say as a high point, but Superman, again, that Superman rage that, that comes out when he's freed from the mercy and he just unleashes on Mongol and just that line, which we that we get this in all the adaptations, like, do you know what you did to me? And and just just wailing on him in the burn and unleashing the heat vision. This has come up on the podcast a bunch of times. It's not like I, I want Superman to, to be, you know, this vengeful, angry God all the time. But in select moments where we see him cut loose, I, I do appreciate it. And it did feel, I'll say this, there there were a few things as we've discussed that I don't necessarily feel track or that feel earned in the comic, but his his rage at, in that moment, I, I did feel was, was earned and I, I felt that was really palpable. And I, I thought that was probably the strongest part of the story for me. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC movie rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Thank you. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast Sam Lim. Sam just moved to the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. 
Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. I agree with you. Um, talking about his rate, did you... Crap, it's in the Bendis run. And super when John comes back and he's aged up and Clark meets John for the first time, he is so angry that he flies through space where Mongol is and just punches him like to let out his rage. Yes. Remember that? Yeah. And that's kind of like the thing is like Mongol gets his rage. Like he, it's one of those people that he can fight that can actually take it. So like I track with his rage of just, he goes after him. He just starts. And in this story, I think the, 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 the strongest parts for me is that the rage when he comes out, the Batman part, because immediately your heart's with Bruce because that's what he wants. And then um, I think what Jason does his one moment of, you know, actually having the mercy in the with the Mongol gloves and putting it on Mongol is great because we see how the mercy affects Mongol, which makes sense. So the whole thing about Clark's mind in the mercy still doesn't add up, but and and yeah, and to your point with Mongol, we see in the little epilogue that he's just carved out this path of destruction across the universe and and is the ultimate ruler. And yes. That clearly makes total sense for what Mongol would want. And so I think the the explanations that we gave, that you gave in particular, I think you laid out a compelling psychological case, you know, maybe for why Clark's fantasy plays out the way that it does. I think it's, it's I mean, it's generous. Like it's generous to, to give the story that because I just don't know. I think we have to read a lot into it in order, you know, for, for that to make sense. You know, like I, I don't know that we're, we're given enough mm -hmm. to really come to that on our own in the context of the story. And another thing that I did not get was how is Bruce freed from the black mercy so easily? I mean, is it that yeah. Robin is holding, is wearing the gloves? I, 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 that's just what I feel like. Cause I feel like the gloves, cause the Mongol had them on. Maybe there's something with them that the, it's able to, you know, take the mercy, the mercy can't affect it or it hurts the mercy or something. I don't know. I just roll with it. I, I think it would have been great since it's Batman we're talking about, if he just instantly was able to snap out of it, he's like his analytical deductive mind was just like, this isn't real. And it just like instantly detaches. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Yeah. I, like, I, that mm -mm. would have been great. Didn't happen. So once the battle is done, they, they give their presence. Unfortunately, the Rose has, has been destroyed, but you know, the, the rose, the Krypton, but, uh, you know, the monument to his parents is, and, and, and the world of Krypton, that's still there. Wonder Woman gives him the bottle city. He quickly goes at super speed. He is the man who has everything. He already has a replica of the bottle city. So very quickly at super speed, he puts the one he already has into the closet and accepts the one from Wonder Woman. She also plants one on him. She gives him a little kiss. Interesting dynamic there where right. he's like, why don't we do this more? And she's like too predictable. I, I thought that was a, an interesting exchange there. It is. And you know, I think my favorite version of like the Wonder Woman Superman kind of romance was done in the uh connected animated films mm -hmm. where like you have where you have the idea like 
these two kind of, there's no traction because like he's the most powerful man. She's the most powerful woman. He's still figuring out who he is and they have this thing, but then, you know, they just realize it's not going to work. They stay friends, they build on. And then she's there to support him as he discovers that he's actually in love with Lois. That's, that's my favorite kind of arc for uh, the Superman wonder woman kind of relationship. So yes, well, that's a quick side note there. <laughs> what do you think about the present of, of a replica of the bottle city? I mean, clearly he, someone else had already given it to him or he had made one for himself. So maybe it's a natural gift, but I'm, I'm looking at this and like, this feels like a, like a, a reminder of one of his greatest failures. <laughs> it took him so long to save Candor. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like Candor was destroyed. Like, you know, later on in once again, the Bendis run where it was actually crushed, um, oh, yeah. it's being made as a monument to, to those, they were freed. It was enlarged. So it's like, Hey, Here's a small thing to remind you of the pain and suffering that, you know, the people of Candor went through. So you can keep that on your shelf. Uh, of course, I know. I think we're both eager to get to the animated episode. Let me just say real quick from those two episodes, two episodes, two issues of Green Lantern. So what was interesting there, I won't do a full recap of both issues, but what was interesting there, at the end of part one, both Hal and Ollie find themselves attached to a single black mercy. And then in part two, we see what this fantasy life would be like where uh, Hal lives in a, in a coast city teeming with people. His dad is still alive. He's got a great relationship with his brothers and, and their kids. And on the Ollie side, he's this devoted family man and he's got this wonderful relationship with Connor and another son and another kid on the way. The little twist here in terms of how they're able to get through this is it's one plant on the two of them. And because Hal's willpower is so strong, his fantasy dominates. And he essentially subconsciously creates for Ollie what Hal believes to be the right happy ending for Ollie, this family man. But Ollie oh. recognizes like this isn't for him or he doesn't deserve it. And he's able to snap out of it. And then he's able to snap Hal out of it. So I thought it was a, a kind of a clever thing. The other aspect that I thought was cool about that story was we, we see more of the potential application of the Black Mercy where Mongol, and this is Mongol II uh, at this point in, in the DC history, has basically created this Black Mercy farm uh, on Earth and is growing all of these plants and he's got all of these humans attached to them and it's the plants are siphoning off their bioelectric auras and powering up this Stargate, which Mongol uses to locate and transport his sister to earth. He wants to not reunite with her and have a happy ending, but, but kill her and be the only Mongol. So there was a little bit more behind it as far as the sort of the purpose and the potential uses of the Black Mercy, but it, it was a cool two-part story. I, I mean, I'm not aware of, other than that and the two adaptations we're going to talk about, I'm not aware of other instances where the Black Mercy has been employed. I don't know if you are, Tyler, audience, if there's anything that you know, I'm not aware of, please let me know. But I just was worth Just like playing. I said, like, just like the, like I said, the only thing is I'll bring it up when we talk about the Supergirl episode, I'll mention a couple of things from the episode of Krypton right. that used the Black Mercy um, without giving you any spoilers. <laughs> Thank you. And I am, we're doing Krypton towards the end of this year on the podcast. So we're getting there. I'm excited. It's another gap that's going to be closed. So, okay. The Justice League Unlimited episode for the man who has everything adapted by J.M.D. Mateus, directed by Dan Reba. 
notably, and I, I don't think I was even paying attention to this one the first time I was watching this years ago or even in subsequent viewings, but Alan Moore actually endorsed this, allowed his name to be on it. I mean, famously, right? He, he has his name taken off all of these other adaptations, but actually was on board with this. I was floored. Well, this is 2004. So was this before he was angry that his name was on stuff? Because when did League of Extraordinary Gentlemen come out? Because I knew that one he wasn't on. He wasn't on. Uh, and it was in 2006, wasn't it? Or when they did V for Vendetta. Because he wasn't on that one. Those are the two I can think of. I don't know if he was ever on any of the Swamp Thing stuff. Like the 90s series. Or... Um, yeah, Even, I yeah. don't. I don't know. League of Extraordinary the Gentlemen was two thousand three. Okay, so it was before this. Okay, okay. So yeah, I, I would say that this maybe he did endorse it because, like you said, famously he has his name removed from everything. Um, yeah. So let, let me. I do you want to say? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. This episode is one of the episodes. Like we, there's the the whole debate, and we won't get into it about who was a better Superman voice, Tim Daly. George Newbern. And when I talked to George uh, two years ago, a year ago, I can't keep track of time anymore. Two years ago, you know, this episode and then the destroyer episode, and then even the uh, Superman Shazam, the return of black lightning film hit the speeches that he gets to deliver. The lines that he gets to deliver is what resonates so strong with me that that pushes George a little bit over him as far as voice because this performance in this episode particularly really resonates with me like it it it, it hits home in a lot of in a lot of ways so like those three instances um his performances i find are so strong that it pushes george into more of my favorite uh superman voice uh, fair enough i i honestly i i love them both i have always i feel like i've always I don't know, maybe gravitated towards George Newbern a little bit more because I feel like he does he does often get overshadowed by Tim Daly, but he's wonderful. Like Newbern is wonderful in the role. And you're right. There are a number of just standout moments and speeches. I will, the the speech to Darkseid and the, the Justice League Unlimited finale about being live, feel like, feeling like he lives in a world made of cardboard. I That is one of my all-time favorite Superman moments from anything. It's It's fantastic. And yeah, here in particular, I—I I mean, I—I—I was—I was in tears while watching this. There, you know, and in moments that we'll get to, but it—it it was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. This is far and away my favorite. This animated episode is far and away my favorite interpretation of of the Black Mercy or for the man who has everything. I think it's just—it's just tremendous. Where where would you like to start? Um, we'll start from the kind of the beginning because I'm with you. This is my favorite version. I. And the biggest thing is I resonate with the Krypton story. Yeah. I find the Krypton story fascinating because when we go there, okay. Um, hold on. I'm check my, my thick pad of notes. Cause I don't think they ever give his wife's name. They don't, but his wife, his, his, this is what I love is he is on Krypton as a wheat farmer. And his wife is Lana Lang looking with Lois's eyes and Lois's voice. 
So right there, his mind is melding his desire for Smallville and his desire for Krypton. And he's buying into it because it's like his ultimate fantasy. Like that's more of the fantasy. Like that's the life that he would just stay with and be with forever. And I love that because it's even more heartbreaking, you know? And when Van shows up and it looks like him and it's got Lois, he has Lois's, you know, purple eyes and everything like in the, it just, uh, man, like we have when he, the idea of Brainiac, the alarm <laughs> on his birthday, waking him out. Um, you know, but we, like you said, there's the rumbling, the tremors uh, and the tremors represent like the breaking down of Krypton in his psychology of it's not supposed to be real. But I don't know if you caught this line, but I had to laugh when he's talking with Van about they got to take care of the back 40. Yes. Because how many times did the back 40 come up in Smallville? Like, we got to sell off the back 40. Or I think it's even in Superman the movie, they talk about Ben Hubbard and like the back 40 or whatever. Like, it just made me laugh. It's like this ongoing Kent Farm joke. Yes. Now, uh, this, this episode. I think is the the full potential of this story realized in in a wonderful way. It's largely faithful, uh, you know, certainly in the overall structure and beats. It omits any any Robin, right? So it's firmly a Trinity which, story, which was perfect. Right, and that's what I'm saying. And I love that Wonder Woman has a gift, and she's like, "What did you get?" And Batman's like, "Cash." <laughs> like, like, and he even says, "What do you get for the man who has everything?" And you know, this is much like we had talked about before in the Death of Superman film, where it was an adaptation that was able to do much more with that story, but keep that story the same. This is doing the same thing. It stripped away things that just were kind of clunky in the book, like Robin, for example. Um, there's similar dialogue. There's similar things. We don't have the Mongol gloves. But I'm 100% bought into the Krypton fantasy. His relationship with Jarrell is great. Um, the What I found interesting is the Black Mercy itself in this is a plant more. and Because you'll see where they actually pull it and it comes up off of his chest. But it's still being held on. So it's not digging into him the way it was described in the book. It's on top of him. And the fact that you hear Batman yelling at Clark and there's a moment in the fantasy where Clark hears Batman's voice. So there is that dis, you know, that way of connecting to him that helps explain how he's able to come out of it. Like there's something there that's helping us as the audience connect with how he's able to break um, the fantasy he's in. So, and wonder woman, um, you know, um, has that great, like you said, part where Mongol comes walking out holding her and you're like, looks like she's beat, but then she like makes the line about it's called playing possum and pops up and just, you know, hits him. So yes, she gets a little bit more. She, she's more BA in this. She is, she is. But so. I think far and away where, where this episode excels is in its depiction of Superman's fantasy and the fact that it incorporates both his planet of origin and his planet of upbringing and 
and and also depicts a relatively peaceful, happy life, right? It it feels yep. far more like <laughs> like a fantasy, uh, but yeah, even but even just in that initial setup, I, I mean, and I just it it makes perfect sense that yes, he's on Krypton, but but he's a farmer, and you see those fields of wheat out there. And, and yes, this amalgam of Lois and Lana. Now this uh, works well in the DCAU, right? Uh, were this to be his fantasy and you know, if we were to get a new version of the story in the current comics or something like that, getting into some dicey uh, marital territory there, well, but <laughs> yeah, in, in this where, you know, he has the past history, we've met Lana before where we see their friendship where she's a model and she was legs. He has this relationship with Lois that we haven't clearly defined, but we can tell there's something there. So yes, it works great because it's like the two women that you've loved are the most important. And it shows Lana kind of representing the Smallville side of his life and Lois, the Metropolis Superman and the molding of those two into his fantasy to create his ultimate life, his ultimate happiness. So you're right. And well, that's true too. I mean, we're talking about it as the Smallville and the Krypton, but yes, it is also the Metropolis as represented by Lois. And of course, you know, always getting that Dana Delaney uh, vocal performance is, is tremendous. Christopher McDonald back as Jor-El. Mike Farrell did a line as, as Jor-El, right? Who played Jonathan? I, I, I wondered, right. But I wondered, but I wasn't sure. Um, so I, I wanted to ask did you watch this on HBO Max or did you watch this on physical? I watched it on the Blu-ray. Okay. I didn't get a chance to put in my Blu-rays because I watched it um, while I was covering a study hall. <laughs> um, I wanted to see, because I know sometimes they'll do commentaries on certain episodes if there was a commentary, because I think this would have been a great episode to have a commentary on. And I was going to ask you if you knew if there was one or not. There wasn't. Unless, it, I mean, I didn't go to the special features menu, but typically if there's a commentary, you'll see a little icon next to it on the main list. So I didn't, but I, I would double check. But yeah, it would be cool to get one on this. But uh, yeah, I mean, just from the IMDb trivia and stuff, I, I, I so Mike Farrell, who, who voiced Jonathan Kent in Superman, the animated series, he voices the robot. And mm. in the credits, he is listed, I think as Jonathan, but then the, the, the trivia was talking about how I think they have him do like one line as Jor-El, but to make it make sense from a production budget standpoint, that's why like they brought him in for the line, but then they also had him do the, the, the Brainiac robot sort of thing. But again, there too, like this idea of representing both, both the earth and Krypton sides, uh, which was one, I mean, still no Lara, but at least she's not, we're not told she's dead in this, in this iteration. She's right. Just not she's, there. she's just not there at the time. Yeah. Which works so much for me compared to your mom's dead. And you know, Cal and, and Jor-El seem to be on, on solid ground. And, and even Jor-El, I talked before about how this is a far kinder treatment of Jor-El. He talks about being able to salvage his reputation, right? His, his prediction proved false at the time. And clearly that was a, a difficult, difficult period for him, but he's not this disgraced cult like leader, you know, at, at this point right. in time. And you and you buy that. You're like, okay, yeah, sure. That would like everything's just well enough that you're like you're buying this perfect fantasy that he would have. Yeah. So and again, we get eh. we you know, we have we have Cal hearing Bruce's voice, feeling the tremors. It it tracks a lot better that he is starting to realize this isn't real. 
I also like too that this just gave them one child. You know, Orna in the comic felt very perfunctory. They didn't really do anything with her. So here we have we have Van and little Crypto. Uh, but you know, when we, we get to that scene, this is the scene that had me in tears when he's, you know, yep. saying this farewell to Van. And I know as a fellow father, I know this. I know this hit you yep. too. The line in particular when he talks about how baby Van, the day he was born, and how he squeezed Cal's hand. It's like I, it took me right back, right back. To uh, to the night my son was born, and they brought him over to the little table, and, and we're inspecting him. And then I went over, and the first thing I did, I put my finger in his hand, and he grabbed it. And so when he was talking about that, it's just like, oh man, it it was it was gut wrenching. It really, it really evoked a, an emotional response. It was so well done. And he's you know like at that point he's breaking free. He holds him. He says, "I'll never forget you." And Krypton starts to explode around him. And I think I told you this story like. The night like my son was born, like I was like holding him. He was laying on my chest. And I was just kind of rubbing his back and everything. And uh, we were doing kangaroo care, you know, where it's like skin to skin. Mm-hmm. So like he was laying just on me. And I was sitting there in the chair. My wife was resting. And I was actually watching Man of Steel on my iPad, like with him asleep on me. Like, and it just, you know, that that van part, like, gets me every time and that's like part of the emotional like i've read i mean i've read comics before where it emotionally will get to you you know a lot especially like a lot with superman being a father and even the bruce and alfred and his relationship to like dick and damien stuff some of the way they write that the fatherly dynamic it gets me a lot harder um but i didn't feel any connection to van in the comic but here I'm right there with, with Clark. Like I'm angry. I'm hurt. So when he pops out and he has that rage and he goes flying at Mongol and he just busts in and you get the line about, do you know what you did to me? And Mongol says about, um, whatever happy, you know, uh, world, the, uh, the mercy granted you. And he's like happy. And he just starts laying into it. And you actually see, Mongol's face getting jacked up and he's just, and I'm, you know, I I'm there. Like, I'm like, do it. Just, just keep going. Just punching. Um, so that's the thing, you know, van, this life wasn't real, but it was real to him. And, you know, for Superman's sake, I hope, I I mean, I know he'll never forget. And, and so of course we want him to honor that. I hope that I know it's not it's not real, but for the sake of our favorite fictional character, I hope that it's it is kind of like a dream, right? We, you know, the memory kind of fades, right? As 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 you reacclimate, and I and I hope that's the case because otherwise that truly would be torturous, right? Like to have the memories of this life, and uh, you know, I was just that's what I was thinking as I was watching this. It's like if if it turned out that this, you know, th- th- this life with my family ha- were, were some fabrication <laughs> created by some enemy. And then it, none of it was real, but I had the memories of it. It, it would be, it, it would be, uh, you know, impossible. So yeah, all of that tracked and, and to Newburn's credit, man, he just sells the, the sorrow and the rage. And it's just, it's such a, such a great sequence. It's kind of like, you know, I've had dreams before. I've told Jania's like, I've, I've had ho- horrible dreams where I might be dating someone else or with someone else, but like, I have the knowledge that this isn't real and I'm looking for Jania and it's horrible. And then I wake up like, sure, are you okay? I'm like, it's just, it's like you said, gut wrenching because you're like, you're searching for what you know is true. 
So, I, you know, waking up and then having that just kind of lingering feeling of like a, with that kind of dream that you believed. Yeah, Mongol deserved to get the crap beat out of him. But then on the other side is when, because in this, like we said, Batman pulls it off of him. And when Batman does, he falls back and it, it gets him. And we're like, we're right there in Crime Alley. And we see that Joe Chill goes to shoot. Thomas blocks and then just starts, you know, punching him. Bruce is cheering on his dad and he's smiling. And then, you know, Diana's like, it's not real, Bruce. And she pulls it off Bruce. And then you just see it shift to Joe Chill getting a punch in. And then boom, boom. And Bruce is right back to being, and you're just like, and that, I mean, that's just such a small, tiny part, but it gets you too, just right there of like, oh man. That's the thing, as much as, of course, this is a Superman story and we spend the bulk of our time in Superman's fantasy, but let's, yeah, let's not forget the Batman of it all too. And Kevin Conroy did the voice of Joe Chill. Oh, in that, which was which was a nice a nice bit, and and again going back to this idea of Wonder, you know, Wonder Woman having stronger moments in this. She's the one who's able to help Bruce break free. She's the one, unlike Jason Todd in the comic, she's the one who who now throws the Black Mercy on Mongol. So she really with, does with no Mongol gloves. With no Mongol gloves. I mean, yeah, she really does take a beating in this. Unfortunately, I guess a necessary one. Like the whole idea is only Superman ultimately can really can really stop him, and that's why he's the larger threat. But she, you know, ultimately has the final say in that moment. It 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 gives her far more to do, and is a, a far better treatment of her character. It is, it is because I mean we use, we even get the callback to her using like the the big plasma rifle gun on him, but yeah, she throws it on Mongol, and then in this we don't see what Mongol's thinking of, but we hear kind of like in his mind of like just chaos and war. And in this version, it's wonder woman who gives him a a rose called the Krypton. And it's a little more subtler. And I, I like that. I, I thought that was a cool shift. Cause I love the joke about cash. Oh yeah. That, that absolutely makes sense, especially for a modern era Batman. Other thing too, in a, in a, another way that this, I think is, is elevated uh, over the comic, uh, you know, to your earlier point in the comic, uh, Wonder Woman and Batman don't know Mongol, right? And there's a, who are you? Which kind of, you only get so much mileage out of that. But here, this episode makes great use out of the history in the DCAU between Superman and Mongol. We had that, that war world two-parter on Justice League. And so they know who Mongol is. And Batman even gets a, gets a dig in there. It's like, yeah, we heard about you and Superman, how he humiliated you. So it's just it's a great mm-hmm. it's a great use of this history and continuity that's already been developed in in this animated universe. And that's a great point to bring up when we get to our next version. Um and I was gonna say is we still got kind of expedition dub though. I thought it's funny with Longwell talking about the Black Mercy, similar to how he gave us the exposition in the comic as well. Yes. You were breaking up there for a second, but we, I got the, the gist of it about, yeah, we still got that, the exposition dump, but uh, yeah, I mean, I look, I, I can't say enough good things and, and you know, it's, it's not to, to dump on the original comic. It's, it, it set, I think it, it the, the bones for a really great story are there. I think the, the animated show for the reasons we've discussed was, was able to really make the most out of that story. And so for, you know, for anyone, and we'll, we still have Supergirl to talk about, but for anyone who, 
hasn't experienced the story in any form, I would recommend both, but in particular that animated series episode. I, I think it's it's just, it's, it's tremendous. Definitely one of my favorite entries in the Bruce Timm uh, animated, animated catalog. And you know, you say that and I think about, I can't think of any other example off the top of my head right now where they did adapt a comic or a story into the Justice League series. I'm like scanning through them quickly in my mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I don't think there's anything. that's like a one-to-one kind of ratio. There might be something that pops like that's similar. I know it's interesting because, you know, obviously we've had animated movies that were adaptations, but as far as episodes of the series that were really, I mean, I think there are instances where you definitely see where they pulled inspiration from the comics, but a tr- like a full on adaptation they're they're rare to say the least and and yeah I, the fact that we can't think of any off the top of our heads is probably uh telling so i'm sure someone is listening yeah. it's like oh this one let us know but uh yeah if nothing else it's rare but they were gonna do it i mean this was like that's the thing I, a, it's self-contained too. yeah yeah like you know you're just you're just in the fortress and then this you just have the trinity it can kind of be put anywhere in the continuity so it works the uh, last thing I want to say that kind of circles back to that Green Lantern two-parter. The Green Lantern two-parter was billed as an Infinite Crisis tie-in, which ostensibly it was because it follows up on Infinite Crisis number one, where Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman are arguing in the Watchtower. Right. So this is the period in in, in DC history. There's a, there's it's a fractured relationship among the Trinity. Wonder Woman has killed Maxwell Lord. Batman has set up the OMAC project and is spying on everybody. There's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of animosity. It's, it's a, it's a sad kind of reversal of the dynamic we get in for the man who has everything where they're united and and celebratory, you know, the reason why they're there together here at the beginning of infinite crisis, the JLA watchtower has been destroyed. So they're there in this rubble on the moon, just really digging into each other. I mean, we get that classic Batman line where he says to Superman, let's face it, the last time you inspired anyone was when you were dead. I mean, it's it's rough. But then you get Mongol in the background there uh, who attacks them and there's a battle and, and he gets away. And then that's sort of the, the backstory to his appearance in Green Lantern where he had taken the Black Mercy from the Watchtower and then set up this this farm and, and you know everything that I explained earlier. But uh, it was, I, I went back and I looked at that Infinite Crisis issue because it's like, yeah, you get the Trinity in this, sort of secluded area and an attack by Mongol. Circumstances are very different, but it definitely called to mind for the man who was everything. So great. All right, man, Supergirl. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. As the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources, 
to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Oh yeah, Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw Yeah. We, we have not, I have not really discussed the Supergirl TV show much on this show. It's come up here and there. I did not watch the entire series. I watched it through Crisis and a little bit past that. And then I gave up. I think I made it to the top of the final season, but I, I I stopped pretty early on. So going back to a season one episode, I was reminded of how strong the show was <laughs> at the outset. I, I do genuinely feel like it it started off really well. And, and even in that initial move to the CW, I still remember enjoying season two uh, and sort of diminishing returns as, as we move forward. Um. I think it's strongest seasons one, two, and three. Season three, I think when I think of season three, a lot of times I think of the Martian Manhunter story where Carl Lumley was there as Marin. I I loved that dynamic. Um, but just like you, like we we went back and James and I, uh, my co-host, he never did anything with season one of Supergirl with me. He didn't come onto the show until sometime in season two. So we had kind of just hit and never really talked about season one a lot. We'd kind of reference it. And recently back in October, we went back and watched the pilot as like an anniversary of, you know, just because the show's off the air and going back, you know, and rewatching the pilot. And like you were saying, like it was fun to revisit the CBS year when it was on CBS. You can tell there's a little bit more budget. There's some distinct differences in, in the production and in the writing and in the, and everything in the characters. So this is the second episode I've gotten to revisit um, recently from that season. And yeah, it was stronger and there was things going on. And a lot of times in any series, that first season's always the upward because everything's new and you're building everything. But they did do a lot uh, with that series of kind of adaptations and things but what I found interesting about this one is much like you were pointing out, this one is for the girl who has everything, but it's still built into um, the continual overarching storyline. So it's not as <clears throat> self-contained as the book or the cartoon episode because um, there's a lot going on that builds into the bigger plot of the, the series arc that still flows through this. So you can't really watch this as its own thing. Like if you don't have any knowledge of this, of the series, you can't just pop in this episode and enjoy it as much without being like, wait, what, who, huh? So 
That that is true. It, that, it took me a minute to sort of reacclimate to. Again, it's been years since I watched season one, I, and I only ever watched it as as it was airing. I never went back and watched it again. Thankfully, the recap was helpful, and of course, I'm well familiar with all the characters and the, the dynamics. But sort of settling back into the plot of season one with her aunt Astra and Nan and their myriad plot to essentially enslave humanity. Uh, you know, I, but I, I got my bearings and I got back into it. And I, you know, yeah, to your point, I'm, I'm watching, I'm like, man, like it, this show look, looks so good in this CBS year. <laughs> like the effects are great. And, you know, we have Laura Benanti here playing dual roles as Laura and, and Astra. Of course, I love Erica Durant. And I was, I was happy when, if we had to have a recast for, for Cara's mother in season three, of course, I was happy to see Erica Durant, but I, I love Laura Benanti. I thought she was great. Uh, in, in those two roles, but yeah, it was, it was fun. So in, in this instance, it's Nan who sends Kara the Black Mercy. That actually happens at the end of the the prior episode. Thankfully, the recap included that. And, you know, similar, similar type of deal here. Team Supergirl, uh, her, her sister, Hang Henshaw, aka John Jones, J- uh, James and Wynn, you know, they all have to work together to try to get her out. We have Maxwell Lord, I was always bummed that he didn't mm-hmm. continue on on the show because I, I liked him in his few season one appearances as a villain. Or or even, even any dialogue about what happened to Maxwell Lord. Yeah, that would have like, been it's good, so right? weird. It's so weird to watch like the last episode of season one of Supergirl and then watch the first episode of season two. Just how some of like the things, the quick just glossing over dialogue that they have about, we've always had this bunker inside the city. Oh, so we're not in the cave anymore? Nope. <laughs> we're now in the city. Okay. Like, it's just like, there's no like, hey, what happened to Max Lord? Like, he's nothing. There's nothing. 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 At least with Cat Grant, there's some dialogue about where she goes, but. That, that's something with television shows that always frustrates me. Uh, it, it's funny because I, of course, I do my own uh, rewatch podcast with the George Reeve show, but I also listen to a number of rewatch podcasts. Currently there, I don't follow this one regularly, but I, I dip in and out of the pod meets world show, both of ah. boy meets world. And yep. uh, it's funny because they talk a lot and it brings back a lot of memories because boy meets world had a bunch of characters and storylines that were just dropped and like never referenced again. I mean, some of them came back around in the girl meets world series. We like, you finally got a little bit of closure years later. But in yes. the original run of Boy Meets World, like there was like people just disappeared. And so now you have three of the actors from the show talking about it and expressing their own frustration about like what happened to so-and-so. And it always drives me nuts, whether it's that show or this or, or any other. It's one thing if you can't bring someone back or you don't want to bring someone back, but how, you know, we're talking seconds, like seconds in an episode to just have some line to just account for something in some way. I don't feel like it's that much to ask. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. Um, I I'm right there with you because I'm a continuity person, and yeah, you bring up the girl meets world. That show's been on my mind a lot lately. But but I just had to say, like, there were three different actors for Topanga's dad. Yes, and the Corey Topanga story was always being retconned and changed and altered about how they met, how they were friends, and all this, like, from the crazy, weird, bizarre Topanga. You know, and then they slowly change her character. My favorite is when her dad was played by uh, Peter Tork, and we got the Many Monkeys reunion on, you know, Boy Meets World. You know, we had three of the four members. I'm a big Monkeys fan. Uh, 
So that was always my favorite version of her dad. But you had, I think Mike was Michael McKeon. One of them. He was one of them. I think Smallville's yeah. Perry White, baby. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, like you say, like he, you get plot lines and storylines that get dropped. And the, I mean, even in this, I wondered if, you know, they had to move to Canada if people just didn't want to do it because they quickly dropped the Jimmy and Kara like love story. Like, pff, like they're building it all for season one and then two, but, pff, but, but looking at this episode, we could go into whole, like I'm going to try to stay like more focused on the, the story elements. Cause there's a lot that happens in the quote unquote real world that pushes this story, like it drives the season. Um, and, and there's some fun stuff that happens too. Like, but the one thing, I don't know if you were thinking this that I was, okay. I'm watching this whole thing. I kept thinking to myself, why does Martian Manhunter suck? <laughs> he takes on the form of Kara to help her not lose her job. But he can't mentally like alter cat and like, you know, mind read cat or, you know, change cat's thoughts that Kara's there or how she's acting towards Kara. Like he couldn't have done, or even just knock cat unconscious and put her into like a sleep coma or something. Or, you know, later when they have to do this whole thing with Max Lord, where they have to put Alex and get her to go into Kara's mind to try to help pull her out. You're telling me Martian Manhunter couldn't have just psychically reached in there and been like trying to pull her out or like had some sort of psychic link, you know, where he was connecting him, Kara, and Alex together. Like they really diminished his character in this show. Because frankly, Martian Manhunter is probably one of the most powerful characters. And this show kind of diminishes him. But I, uh, you know, I, that. It, that didn't bug me so much. The whole the whole him posing as Kara, it yeah, is a bit contrived, and it's like, well, he could have used some, you know, uh, you know, mental shenanigans to sort of get through this faster. But I, all right, they wanted to play the comedy of of an, an out of character Kara, and Melissa Benoist gets to play that. I was okay with that, but I had the exact same thought as you when they had to they had to rely on Max Lord and this device in order to get Alex into Kara's mind. I had the same thought. I was like, could he not, could John not do this? But maybe that was beyond his, his, uh, I don't know. This was also early on too. And not everyone even knew who he was yet, which I was, that took me a second. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Like he was still, you know, that was a, like a I mean, he wasn't. Reveal. Maybe he didn't have as much of his power. Cause I feel like once his dad shows up, his powers get stronger. I, it's been a while since I've watched them all. But, I mean, he wasn't even supposed to be Martian Manhunter. He was supposed to be Hank Henshaw. And it wasn't until they were filming the pilot that Jeff Johns was there and said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if he was actually Martian Manhunter in disguise? And that's why, like, his characterization in the pilot is so much different than where he goes because they decided to make that adjustment to his character. Um, Yeah. Well, with this up, but with... Go ahead. No, no, you go. I think we're going to the same place. I was going to (laughs) say... I was just going to say, with with this episode, I did like that much like the book, it opens up on Krypton. You know, we did have that lead in from the previous episode. um, But if you're just watching the episode, it starts with her on Krypton waking up. And, you know, her her mother's there. And we see Kellex is there. And she's like, where am I? And she's immediately, she, I thought this was interesting. 
immediately she is aware that this is wrong. Yes. And this kind of works backwards from the other versions where you're buying into it. She wakes up like, what's going on? This is wrong. And they have this whole thing about the Argo fever and she's having a hallucinations and all this that they're feeding her about her being sick. And, you know, she's fighting it and she's like, I need to get back. Um, and we get, you know, Cal's name dropped and we, you know, we see her dad and her mom. We see a more, what, preteen, about, uh, what would you say, 10-year-old maybe, Cal? Yeah. He's there. So it's all kind of tracking with if she had never left Krypton where her life would be. Um, you know, and then Astra shows up. No Jarrell, though. No, no, Cal's there, but his parents aren't there. Because um, we can't, God forbid we ever get a scene of anything with Ka- with Zorel and Jarrell together. I know. God forbid that ever happens. Um, (laughs) That always makes me mad. It's like you can only have one. You can't ever get the two together. Um, So I thought that was interesting. I thought, you know, the fact that the longer she's under the mercy, the stronger it it becomes and the harder it's going to get her to, to get out of it. I also liked the way the black mercy actually looked being on her and like, they would touch it and it would get tighter into her. I feel like this is much more of like the kind of how it was in the book. Um, it was very creepy. <laughs> um, so like, but it looked, you know, like it, it, it was all around her. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I obviously had had the same reaction as you did. Again, I, I didn't remember this episode well enough, so I was surprised at the outset when she, you know, wakes up knowing that this isn't right, like you said, and then buys into it more and more. And, and over the course of the episode, you know, she starts to forget, right? So she doesn't remember, you know, she, the, the name Earth at a certain point. And or Supergirl. I, exactly. And I thought what was cool about that was I feel like it it raised the stakes, Right. Because it's one thing when you start yes. fully bought in and then it's like, okay, well, you know, this will kind of chip away and she'll come out of it. But when you, you go in the opposite direction and she gets more and more firmly entrenched in this fantasy, of course, yes, we know she's going to come out of it, but I feel like it, it does kind of escalate things. So I thought that was a, a cool twist. Also here, as far as what her fantasy would be, you know, this was someone who spent the first, what, 12 or 14 years of her life on Krypton. So the idea yep. that this would be her fantasy made absolute sense. Even though at the end of the episode, she feels like she has to explain to James and Wynn and, and Alex like why she envisioned herself on Krypton instead of Earth. And she talked about how she's experiencing this period of turmoil and she's feeling out of place just like she did when she first came to Earth. And just as back then she fantasized about life on Krypton, that's why now her Black Mercy fantasy was on Krypton. Uh, I don't think she even owed them that. I feel like it, it makes total sense that she would see herself on this planet that she spent her, her early years on. Unlike Kal-El. I, I totally agree. That's why I say that the animated series of kind of blending Smallville life, Metropolis and Krypton works for his fantasy because that's what's always been a great difference in the Supergirl and the Superman characters is he didn't live on Krypton. She did. So she always has this knowledge of what she always has more of the sense of what she's lost and he has, um, you know, a, another thing like in this episode, like we see what the black mercy looks like and how it 
it is. And I, I just wanted to mention this in Krypton, the series, the black mercy, the live action looks more fungal. Like it's spread out through the person. It goes in through their nose. Like their skin is like black, almost like it's putting a venom in them because, and they talk about what brings that character out of it is they're actually using the black mercy for something else. And they're putting a needle in it and injecting it's um, venom, it's toxins out. And as they do that, it's like causing ripples into the character that's starting to blend the knowledge of the real world and the fantasy and causing them to crash. And that's what pulls the character out of it um, compared to any external person or anything trying to you know help. It's if they had not pulled the uh, toxin from the mercy – they talk about how you could potentially live your entire life or forever under black mercy. And like I said, the, it's much more uh, fungal plant than this is more plant um, and uh, a fungus. But I, th- I thought that was an interesting, different take. And there's some dialogue in there about the where the black mercy came from and stuff like that. But I won't get into that. I just thought the... Uh, the way the person came out of it was just, you know, different compared to how we're seeing here where, um, like you said, in this, Alex goes into Kara's mind through a machine to try to break her out of, you know, the, uh, the fantasy that she's in and, you know, gets super melodramatic of her trying to talk to Kara. I need my sister. And, you know, Kara like Supergirl, but, you know, and then, they like eventually car reaches for Alex and breaks her out. And it's, we get a really cool, creepy scene of the black mercy just kind of crawling off of Kara. Yeah. The thing that I missed from that scene was, I feel like if that was me and I was waking up that rage, like why she didn't just heat vision that thing. Like, you know, like even though it was dying, I would have been like, and like, just like burned it there so that no one would even touch it or it could get on anybody else or far be it. They just think they want to study it. You know what I'm saying? So, right. But I'm rambling. No, uh, it's uh, the only, the only thing missing for me, and maybe this is asking too much, but although this was a CBS year, they had more money. It would have been cool to see any more of Krypton. We stay in that one room (laughs) the entire time we're there. People come in. We get some wide shots. We get some wide shots of like the, you know, the city, but they never, venture out into into it yeah i mean it would have been neat to get a little bit more of of her life on krypton but again i think what they did certainly achieves their 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 purpose with this episode but uh you know it would have been kind of cool but as far as alex entering the mind uh yes it is maybe a little bit melodramatic it's also (laughs) you know there are these two these two big guys who are trying to pull alex away and it's like they can't budge her and it's like look alex is strong but outnumbered here. I feel like this was really a little bit of a stretch, but I like the, the words. It was definitely emotional. What was interesting about that scene was those two big dudes. If you look at them, have the house of L on their sidearm, like on a patch. And I was like, huh? Interesting. Like once again, like I, I you know, if the mercy and car are kind of creating the fantasy, you know, she's holding these guys, but are they not strong because Kara's mind is actually wanting Alex to 
you know, it's the subconscious of the mind is not really fighting back. It's starting to let Alex take over. I like, but that. I thought the patches on the arm. So that that's my rationale for it because, you know, you, the, it's a symbiotic relationship between the host and the, and the mercy. So if the person is rejecting the mercy, they're going to start to be able to alter the, the, the things around them. I, I like that. I could, I could buy into that. And, and, you know, when she wakes up and, and then confronts non, you get that same type of rage and the same line, like, you know what you did to me and she just pummels non. Uh, so I, uh, I think she, I think she should have lobotomized him. Like, because, you know, in, in comics, like non actually was a very intelligent person. He was big, but he was smart. But then they basically did a Kryptonian version of a lobotomy because of his behavior. And that's what made him later into just being the, dumb mute brawn on zod's team so like if she had done something like that where like non just kind of was like eh, but whatever and you know I, I gotta be honest man. i like i i had forgotten that non was the villain of the season <laughs> like i really again it's been so long and it was well before i started this podcast so it's like yeah now thinking about all of this and you know tracking it more and and i'm reminded just in watching this one episode of how many elements from the Superman mythology, this show pulled in. So I, I, you know, I don't know to what extent I would do like full on coverage because I don't know how much of this, and I don't, I, I don't say this to be mean, but I don't know how much of this show I really have in me to rewatch. There are definitely some episodes or arcs that I, I would go back to. It's, it's not a. I think you do a good re, a remix episode, you know, re- like you've done before. Like you do a, a remix episode where you pick some from each season, kind of hit on. Um, you know, when this, when this season, when this, when that series, I'll just say this was first ever announced, uh, me and some guests, you know, we had a conversation like, do you do, cause you know, there was no talk of Superman. I was like, do you do Supergirl in the way that she replaces Superman where you're kind of doing the Superman story, but more in the Supergirl model where there is no Superman, they're just a Supergirl. And would that be a disservice to the character and what there, but then if you do have Superman, what is his story? Like, you have to mention him or it's really awkward. And I think they found a nice way of positioning her in her own right and having like Superman there. But then at the same time, there's so many Superman characters, story elements that they just throw into her. Like, Oh, we have Supergirl, So we're going to do this Superman story, but with her. And then later how they even try to do like a red daughter storyline and, <clears throat> And things like that, they're just like making the Supergirl version of it. And there's more. And like, this is a prime example, but at the same time, I'm okay with this because we hadn't had this in live action. Um, and, and, you know, and it made for a really kind of rich story, especially with her being someone who actually experienced Krypton and has that desire to be back there compared to Cal, who had never been there. So for her mind to to buy into it makes more sense, you know. Especially when she wakes up and they're talking about the the Argo sickness and hallucinations. There's more for her to buy into mentally than there was for Cal in the book. So I think I think this was one that they chose well with that actually served a purpose and it works. And I mean, like you said before about the Green Lantern comic the black mercy is something that could affect more characters and give them similar stories than just being a one on one to one Superman story. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, not that 
it, it was necessarily played for this in any of the instances we're talking about, but the, you know, the black mercy, it's, it's, you know, in a way can be a gift, right? By showing you your, your heart's desire. I, I mean, again, not even so much, you know, in the case of Batman, for example, it's pretty obvious. I don't think that was revelatory for him or anything like that. Even similarly to like for Supergirl like that, she would be on Krypton. But I, I feel like there, there could be a version of the story where it really sets a character on a new path or, or something like that. Yeah. Because, you know, you think about sometimes we don't know what we want. <laughs> and so to kind of be shown right. that could, could actually be a, could be a positive. And I, I agree completely with your idea if this had been done on Smallville, that being kind of the basis of showing Clark what his, you know, his heart's desire was. And like you said, I think that somewhere there is that story that could be used to help a character realize what they truly want or what they see, or like you said, put them on a new path. Um, it just hasn't been used that way yet. And I think with this story, especially you can see where that could be done, you know, um, with the original comic version, I don't see that kind of a story, but the way it's evolved, I can see that. And, and the way it's used in Krypton as well, like where it really is more of what someone truly wants out of their life. So. Gotcha. And I'm excited to get to that. I, I, you know, I would love if Superman and Lois did, did something like this. I, I kind of, regardless of what the device is, what? Go for it. Do it on Superman and Lois, but it attacks Jonathan. And then you can do the story kind of you're talking about what is there, because you have that character who states that they're not jealous of their brother. Hmm. But what is their, what is their, you know, and then after the arcs that we had with him and the drugs, you know? Yeah. Um, what is that character's his his heart's desire? What does he want compared to like Clark? Because I feel like if we did Clark, it would be like, eh, because you know we've had his journey. He's an older Clark. He's married. He has his children. I feel like this Clark kind of has his heart's desire, but to do one of the kids and to lean into Jonathan, who kind of, especially after his his whole arc of losing football, losing everything that made him the person he was. You know, and then trying, then looking up to John Henry and kind of being rejected that way. That if the Black Mercy took hold of him, it would be a very strong story. There, there we go. There's our pitch. I agree. I like it. I mean, regardless of what the device is, at some point in the show's run, which you know, given the state of CW and Warner Brothers Discovery, I, I don't, I don't know that we're going to see that many more seasons. Hopefully, it's sooner rather than later. Uh, I would like some kind of uh, fantasy where. Clark and Lana are together again, just for like one episode, not real, but just sort of, and I imagine that would, again, like, I don't imagine Clark would fantasize about that, but through some kind of like alternate reality shenanigans or Lana has the fantasy, whatever the case may be. That's, that's right there. That's how you do it. And you get away with it. It's it's Lana's deep fantasy that she wishes she had been broken up with Kyle when Clark told her about how he came back. Yes. That scene where he came back off the bus, her deep fantasies that she wasn't with Kyle that she turned around and took Clark do it with her. Cause then you get away with it. You yes. know what I'm saying? Yes. If you do it from Clark's mind, you got too many problems, but you do it from Lana's mind. It's all good. Yeah. So I guess I think I know probably where you and I would both land in terms of trying to answer the question of what, what is Superman's just in a general sense, heart's desire. And I think when we look at something like Superman and Lois or the modern comics, I think he's living it. I, I or I certainly hope that he's living it. 
maybe with the exception of the setting. And I, and I think like that animated version of blending all of his worlds is real. Like, I really, really like that. I like that for the character. And it's a great way of reconciling all these, these pieces and parts of his life that formed him in various ways. So again, certainly in the context of the DCAU, I think what we got is, is, is perfect and, and totally tracks with the character in a more general sense. Like I said, uh, depending on w- which iteration we're talking about, but especially these more modern ones with his family, I'd like to think he's already living it, but sort of this blended world is, is a, is a wonderful idea. I, I agree. That's why I don't think if you did that story now, or if you did on Superman Lois with Clark, it would work because I feel like he's already there. Yeah. You know, he, 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 he has what he desired. He's accepted. He's, you know, free. He has the love of the woman that he, you know, loves. He has his family. Um, he's in Smallville, which he loves, you know, and everything. So yeah, I, I think the story works at that sweet spot of like with the Supergirl context, like, you know, this is season one where she's just coming out as Supergirl. She's just started taking that role. She's dealing with the realization that her aunt's still alive. They're still Kryptonians, but they're evil. And so she's wrestling with that. So I think that the story works best here for her. You have to, I think to make it really work, the character has to be at a lower point. Um, but with the animated series, I think it's the best version possible of the story. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you very much. Uh, you know, it's funny because this, and I know you know how I map out episodes far in advance. This one like really wasn't on the list in, in for a while. And then it's like, well, of course you got to do an episode on this. I guess, you know, we had touched on it in the Bronze Age episode and, and maybe at the time I felt like, well, that's sufficient. But, you know, in thinking about it more and especially in the context of these adaptations, because I think that really puts a lot more meat on the bone here. It definitely more than worthy of its own episode. And I'm really glad that we got to talk about it. And again, at, at the end of this little trilogy here, looking at what is the right ending for the character? What What is the character's heart's desire? Uh, I, I think it's fascinating to to ponder. And audience, I'd welcome you know, your takes as well, what, what you think the answers to these questions are, because there's no right or wrong. You know, I think we all look for something maybe oh, true, a little true. bit different. So uh, thank you very much. I hope that everyone will check out the Krypton Report podcast available on all major podcasts, on all, all podcast platforms uh, and on social media yep. as well. Uh, is there anything else that you want to let people know about or direct people to? No, I appreciate, you know, getting to come to come on and chat this because usually for people, I, I joke and we've joked before how prepared you are and planned ahead. I think what, this is like a week ago, you asked me if I wanted to do this, which has been like the shortest turnaround. I think we've ever had any interaction in, um, usually it's like, Hey man, in three months, do you want to do this? Yeah. All right. I'm in. But you're like, Hey, you want to do this like now? Sure. Let's do it. I know we so, mixed, we mixed it up a little bit. And, oh, I wanted to say this on, on the episode on, on air that I, you know, I always enjoy our conversations, but it's become a running joke with us where I've a lot of the prior topics that I've had you on to discuss have not been the, you know, the, the, the brightest stars in the Superman canon, you know, we did the Supergirl movie and Superman three and four, you know, there've been a few things where, you know, some, some might consider them duds. I think we've, we've always found a lot to talk about, but I was like, I gotta, gotta give Tyler something that's good. (laughs) That's good to talk about. Gotta give him something something that's prominent and powerful and, you know, emotionally like good. Ah, we'll get, we'll, we'll cry together over the loss of our imaginary child and our 
what it's like to be a father and lose that son. And that'll be, that'll be a good conversation. And it was, you know, and, and you know what, like just the last point I'll say is like, I don't rem- I remember being sad the first time I watched it and feeling that connection. And that was a, like, that was back probably in 06, 07 when, uh, a friend of mine in college in the dorm let me borrow his box set of All Justice League Unlimited. Because that was the first time I saw the episode. But anytime I watch it now, when it gets to the van, like I, you know, I'm trying to think about watching it before I had Solomon, but I don't really have a memory of watching it. Like I have like multiple memories of watching it since I've had Solomon, just through different things. You know, like just having it on the background or watching it back when we did the Supergirl episode in season one. That was shortly after he was born. It's just interesting because the, the episode will forever, you know, resonate with me as it will you as well. Of just being like one more thing that connects me with the character. So beautifully said. Well, thank you, Tyler. Thank you, audience. Always appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you come back in one week for our next all-new episode. As always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.